So you don't like it when I touch the boom? No, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't care. I don't think our listeners like it. <laughs> but you, you're one of our listeners, so you have to listen to the rough cut. That's true, I have to. Okay. I'll stop touching the, the mic boom for mm-hmm. right now. Um, I, I wouldn't call it fiddling. I mean, I, was, I needed to move it. This is exactly the kind of banter that the listeners hate. Really? I don't know. I, I think this is what they tune in for, dude. I, we, we need to figure this out. Huge show. Yeah, we had a big show today. Big show. We had a big show today. And uh, we're going to get right to that, but we want to get to some feedback first, because um, we had some, I, there are a couple of interesting things that we should at least mention. Yes. Some of it relates to uh, topics we've explored on earlier episodes. Now, what did I, in relation to the one bit of feedback, Joe, we talked last time about the, um, what, what did I forget to do? Do you remember what I forgot to do? I do remember. Uh, we, we had, um, there was a blog post written by uh, law professor Nicholas Georgiakopoulos, and we mentioned it, uh, but it didn't make it into the show notes. On the knee defender thing. On the knee defender thing. Uh, he, he wrote a blog post about it, commenting on comments we had made. Um, and because you can never look, folks, it's you haven't, you haven't died and gone to purgatory. You've just encountered yet another discussion about uh, reclining airplane seats and the knee defender. It will never stop. It will be forever with us now. It's become one of the leading topics in anything, anywhere, ever. Well, I, it's a microcosm. It's a microcosm of the eternal human struggle. Correct. I mean, there was this great thing this week of the, uh, this is, we should add this to the show notes, the, the Chris uh, Buckafusco and Chris, Sprig, uh, uh, Chris Sprigman um, piece. I don't know this one. What is on, this? Uh, on, I think it's on Slate, where they actually did some empirical work. What, in threw, the wake of all of these controversies... They reclined seats and threw water and stuff like that? <laughs> what is, what is, what they is this set up some, uh, They set up some online survey experiments, and it's really fun. It's a really great piece. We'll link to that. Okay. Uh, but we, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos had written this... Uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh he wrote a blog post. We talked about it, but we didn't link to it. Yeah, well, and we were a late, we were a week late mentioning it because we mentioned we didn't distinguish it among all the feedback that we got on the on the knee defender thing. Right, and then I specifically said, "I'm sorry, we didn't mention this last week. We'll put it in the show notes." And then guess what? Didn't make it into the show notes. Yeah, but so we, we're going to put it in the show notes now. Another, yeah. we've also received an email from him uh, from last week's episode, and because I had said he'd be a great guest, and I. And I believe he would be, and I continue to believe he would be, notwithstanding. Does he his, think so, Joe? He's he's a little more skeptical, uh, <laughs> and and in part that's that may be um, a, a sort of a delightful modesty on his part. I think though he's also making a little bit. I of think a he's mi- worried about the low bar that we set. He's that could be, <laughs> but I think he's also making a mistake in terms of our the subject matter, the range of subject matter in which we're interested, because he, by way of demurring. Uh, indicates that the topics that are of interest to him, he lists a number of them, but then he sums them up by describing them as uh, details of the underbelly of our financial system. Now, anyone who's listened to the show on a consistent basis knows that we are huge fans of Marissa Baradaran, uh, who writes about a- absolutely that. No, we certainly are, but I think also... The underbelly of the financial system. She's all about the banksters. Yeah, but in general, our specialty is underbellies. Just underbellies generally. Underbellies generally. So, you know, the stuff under stuff, the stuff behind stuff. Good Let's point. get into it, you know? So, yeah, of Why course. isn't this podcast called The Underbelly? 
<laughs> I mean, it's, co- it's called oral argument, but now I realize it could actually be called the underbelly. Can we do a second podcast that's called the underbelly? Well, we, I already have a second podcast that we are trying to start that we haven't done yet. This is the, this is the Hold Up podcast. Yes. Where we, where we watch movies and figure out whether they hold up or not. Right. Uh, which will be great. I think it'll be great. It's going to be great. So it's a third podcast. It's called The Underbelly. Mm-hmm. Or just Underbelly. <laughs> Maybe you just don't even put the article in there. You yeah, just say Underbelly. Little, yeah. Um, anywho, yeah. I think he's wrong about uh, his desirability to us and our listeners as a guest. So I hope in the fullness of time, we will have him as a guest. Okay, one quick point to add here uh, on that. Listeners, please email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That's oralargumentpodcast, all one word, no funny business, at gmail.com. And we would love to hear the kinds of things that, that you want to hear. In fact, I think this episode totally. that, we're about to, that we're about, you're about to listen to on, on design, typography, I think after we talked about it, the last show that we did on this, um, we, got an, we got feedback saying, I'd love to hear more about that. And we boom, absolutely did, from more than we, one listener. And we delivered. Yes. Today we deliver. You can also uh, uh, like us on Facebook. There's a Facebook yeah. page, and it, you could you could communicate with us there. We have a lot more listeners than we have likes on that page. And if I get a bunch of likes, like we get more. Like I don't boost. I don't do any of the nonsense on there. I just made a Facebook page, and right. if we get more likes, it'll help us with something. I'm not and, sure. So. And all I'm saying is, it's another way to let us know what you want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Is or, you could you could go there and and give us a message and it, we would take that into account as well or tweet us at oral argument on um on uh twitter on the, on the twitter on the twitter the yeah. twitter machine so uh the other things i wanted to mention uh last time uh we had a, a great discussion uh relating to animal law and the animal as a subject in law rather than as an object in law. Mm-hmm. With another Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Lieben, La- the Matthew Animal Lieben, Legal Defense Fund. Uh, at Animal Legal Defense Fund. And uh, there's an article actually in Slate, I think it's today, might be yesterday, um, about the challenges that NIH is having and a bunch of different researchers are having uh, finding ways to retire the... Uh, chimpanzees that are in american laboratories to in terms of chimp sanctuaries and how these things are getting paid for um the conditions that the chimps are living in in the sanctuaries versus other places that they could be retired and various opinions people have about what's an appropriate environment for them to be living in yeah it's a really i think it's a a a very interesting uh glimpse into an important uh obligation that we have as people who have, among other things, benefited from a lot of medical innovations and pharmaceutical innovations, um, you know, there are there are primates that are not human, but that have paid enormous prices uh, for those benefits yeah. that and, we enjoy. Yeah, and, and and we're not going to revisit the entire show. From no, last but, time, it, but but it's a great, it's a thing you could read if you're interested in the topic and I'm you want to learn link more it about it or think more about yeah. it. It's something you could look at. I'm going to link that up in the show notes as well as... Um, the link that you sent me last time about the pronunciation of chimpanzee, which you insist on apparently pronouncing as if you were British. <laughs> it's not really a matter of insisting on it. It's just, it's the way I pronounce the word. You I don't know why it. I pronounce it as if I were British. I'm not British. I, I'm not a citizen of that country. I didn't have not, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up there. Mm-hmm. So I really don't know why I pronounce it as they do. When, uh, when, you, when you open the front of your car and look at the engine, what, what have you opened? I refer to that as the hood. Okay. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. Just checking. Um, 
<laughs> and if I open the back, I call that the trunk. Uh huh. Um, thank you, Darcy. There we go. The much needed Darcy shake. Uh, another thing um, that I think is fun for people to look at that we could link up in the show notes is there's a great uh, uh, article or post uh, at the Washington Post about podcasts. Okay, great. And yeah. and we talked about different podcast listening software before, and I just think the whole topic of podcasts for our listeners, maybe they're interested in podcasts more generally, and I think this piece is a great little piece. I haven't seen it yet, but it seems to be in the the way you describe it, it's talking about like how it, podcasts are kind of exploding or at least increasing in popularity and the changes yeah. in that marketplace. Kind of of a piece with the things that I've I posted, I've made that uh, blog post about uh, podcasts a while back, kind of explaining my thinking and why you know we started this show. Um, yeah. And some of it's about the changes in technology that facilitate right. this, and and some of it is different business uh, approaches that people are using in terms of creating the funding streams yeah. that can be used to support the production of, of podcast material. So I think it's really fun. It was before, interesting to me. Before we go to, to, to our guest and, and really start the show, just one more plug in terms of podcasting software. Uh, if you're not listening to us on your phone... Uh, with an app, you should be. It's by far the best way. We've mentioned it before. You just subscribe. The stuff yep. magically arrives. You don't have to think about downloading it. The f- latest shows are always there. Are you but an Overcast user? I, I use Overcast. That's what I've been using too. Uh, so it's at overcast.fm. Maybe I'll link it up again. I've linked it a few times. But what I think is great for our show, because I, maybe it's, I'd like to think it's because we're thoughtful, but maybe just because we're amateurs. Uh, there's a setting in there that lets you, uh, that skips silences. But does it in a kind of an intelligent way? Yeah. And so you can you can also increase the speed, and maybe you want to do that with our show. Maybe you don't. I usually listen to our show like one X, and then I skip silences. It makes us sound so much smarter, Joe. Smarter, and it goes faster, so you get to enjoy more things. Right. It just the whole show is quicker. I think it it improves the speed by like twenty percent just from the skip silence. It's thing. kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um. So so I think for as of now, I think that's the best way to listen to our show is, on, is in Overcast with the. Uh, Shorten silences feature. Turn now, on. is that avail- is Overcast available on like an Android phone? No, or? I think Pocket Cast is still the best Android. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know this for sure. But because you and I are both iPhone well. users, yeah. so we might not know the best thing for an Android phone. Yeah, that's true. I think that um, Overcast is for me. I, there are a number of other ones. Castro. I think we've done this before. Listeners, if you, if you I think Castro's a, for Android now too. If you love a particular program for listening to this on your on your Android phone or similar phone instead of an iPhone, let us know what you use. Well, there you go. Because that could educate us, and we would pass that along to everyone else. Yeah. I think that's right. So get to us with, get, get back to us with topics, get back to us with suggestions, uh, criticisms, complaints, uh, glowing praise. We, you know, we'll take it all. And um, I, that's all I've got, Joe. Or do you have anything else? No, let's go for let's it. Let's get to it. If you're listening to us right now and you haven't yet thoroughly ingested and thought about Matthew Butterick's practical typography, please turn us off immediately. <laughs> Go do that instead. It is time much better spent. Once you've finished that, then you can turn us back on and have fun and sport. All but, right, let me do one more little introduction then. Okay. Uh, because we had an episode, I think it was called Big Red Diesel a while back. This is where, an early episode. This is an early episode. So this is maybe to set you up, Matthew, on, on where our show is on these issues. Because normally we talk about legal theory or particular legal issues, but we have done some shows uh, about about other things, uh, things kind of related um, to practice or to theory, but in you know more oblique ways. And so we did a show about basically the horribleness of Microsoft Word, um, about email etiquette, about uh, 
spaces after a period and, and about, you know, typography and, and linked up your, your book in that episode. Um, that's true. We sent people to that as a resource on the show notes page for that episode. But you can't, I mean, it can't be said enough. We could put it on the show notes for every episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind, kind of thing where, like, you know, attaching a Word document in an email when it would be better as plain text, it's kind of like, I think we said in that show, kind of like showing up to the dinner table without a shirt on, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, so that's where we are. And, and maybe we could take that further now. Or, or if, I don't know if you have any more general thoughts, though, Matthew. No, that's, that's all fine with me. We'll, 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 we'll go wherever you like. Why don't we start just with, uh, you know, why should, I, I know you've kind of answered this in your book, but maybe we could start there. Like, why should lawyers care about how their kind of briefs, products, other things, why, why should they care about whether they are designed and what does it mean to design um, a, a technical document like that? Well, I, I want to, I mean, why should lawyers care? I think lawyers should care about the the typography of their documents, you know, for the same reasons they care about, uh, you know, how they dress to court and, uh, you know, how they you know, present themselves during an oral, oral argument. Um, you know, the, the written word is, is part of, of, you know, how you're, you're presenting your argument. And it's, it's strange to me. It's like we don't have any problem convincing lawyers that they shouldn't, you know, say, show up at the Supreme Court with a big coffee stain on their shirt, right? You wouldn't do that. So laundry, everyone's good with. But the idea that, <laughs> that you, know, you, you would take a, you know, a few minutes to, to make your document, uh, you know, a little easier on the eyes, that, that seems to be a little more controversial. And I'm not, I, I, I'm not quite sure why. I think really it's just sort of a, um, <laughs> uh, someone once gave me the phrase, the snobbery of ignorance, right? The, the, the tendency, if you've never thought about something before, to simply suppose that it, it can't be very important. Whereas, you know, lawyers have been putting on clothes uh, many, many years, so they can appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a, I, the good news is that I don't find that it really takes that much to to convince lawyers, especially when they start seeing that it's just, it's not, really isn't rocket science. And that's what, you know, you bring up the notion of design. I don't, I mean, it is designing, but, you know, we're talking about some, some very, uh, you know, simple, basic stuff, you know, this fundamentals as it were. So I don't want anyone to think that, that I'm beckoning them into some esoteric land of typography and it, it, you know, at its outer reaches, it, it can get esoteric, but, um, uh, in a good way, but you know, for <laughs> for for lawyers' purposes, you know, you don't have to go all the way. So I think it's you know, yeah. that's really the best compliment I can get from a lawyer, and which I which I do often, which is like, wow, I thought this book would be so boring, yet it wasn't. Or, you know, I spoke at a you know to some lawyers in Washington a few weeks ago, and someone wrote to me, it's like I just thought that was going to be the dullest session of our conference, but. In fact, I got a lot out of it. So I think that lawyers, yes, are are, are surprised to find that, you know, what I claim to them is true is like, look, you already, you have typographic tastes because you've been reading all your life. Um, you, right. You know, so you have a sense of, of what reads well and what doesn't. So this idea that somehow you don't have the, the skills, like this is just beyond you, it's, it, it's, that's not true. I mean, you need to know how to, uh, you know, manipulate certain things in your document that you didn't know about or think about before. Um, and again, you know, that's part of why, you know, when I'm writing the, the, you know, the book, I'm trying to 
create as much latitude for people as possible. You know, say, look, you know, here's a, a guideline about, say, line length. You know, it should be 45 to 90 characters. It just, um, you know, I, I want people to to do some experimentation with their own eyes because when they do that, they'll find, oh, yeah, I, can, I really can see the difference. And after that, you know, it's it's easy. I don't need to encourage them anymore because they're getting, you know, they can see the benefits from themselves. And you've got, you know, we, we linked this up before in that earlier show I mentioned, you've got kind of a top 10 in the Typography for Lawyers book about, you know, just quick things you can do, which make your document, well, I'll say it this way now, just look so much more awesome. And and I <laughs> kind of want to get into whether design is about more than just aesthetics, because I, I think it is, and, and um, I think that's worth returning to. But just for now... Um, you know, it's almost like, do you think it's that um, for years and years and years, lawyers are used to kind of having a professional life in which nothing is, uh, which ver- in which, you know, very few documents have been beautiful, you know, especially if you've been browsing like Westlaw and, and Lexis for cases and, uh, and you get, uh, maybe you're practicing in, a, in one of those courts that uses like a courier font, double space that actually numbers the lines. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. And, oh, yes. Uh, and, and so, you know, you're, you're just in an environment where kind of your tastes are anchored toward, I, I don't ever, I don't think anything is truly undesigned, but if anything is, it is the documents that lawyers tend to, ha- have tended to consume with, uh, especially the earlier versions of Westlaw and, and Lexis, and then the kinds of output from, from courts. And so maybe uh, there's like no expectation that, you know, I should design my documents better or I should focus on these things um, either because they think it's hard or just because it's the idea of kind of beauty. If we're just going to focus on beauty for right now has never been thought to be salient as a description within legal documents, as opposed to say reading a good novel or reading a magazine. And it seems to me that that's changing because I think design is increasingly everywhere. And I think more and more people are aware of it, but uh, that, does that resonate with you, This the idea of being awash in a sea of poorly designed documents having a kind of expectations effect? You know, I, I think you're, there's, there's something to that. Yet at the same time, while I am a lover of, of, of beautiful things, I'm, I'm careful about not wanting to lead with the idea of beauty when it comes to typography because it's, you know, it's a right. fundamentally kind of pragmatic tool. Do you know what I mean? So uh, I almost feel yeah. like if you want to get into the, the beauty of things, that's sort of the next, um, you know, pasture over. But in this one, it's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's just a tool that we use to, uh, you know, to, to make things easier on the eyes to, to preserve reader attention. Um, you know, you're right about Westlaw and Lexus. It's been a while since I've used them, but my wife is a lawyer. So I look over her shoulder and I say, I can't believe that that, that stuff is still as ugly <laughs> as it was when we were in law school. It's like, it's like yeah. nothing's, no time has passed on the internet. It's, what is this? It's a joke. And I, I, I think in their case, maybe it's just a captive audience and they figure, right. well, you know, what are you going to do? And so, um, you know, but the idea that, that legal documents, have to be ugly is is really kind of I think a, a new notion. I mean, if you um, go and look at like the Supreme Court opinions, uh, U.S. Supreme Court, like they're very well typeset, and in fact, you know, they obey yep. pretty much all the guidelines that I suggest. And it's part of that is because you know the Supreme Court has been sort of holding its formats over from a, a previous era of typesetting. But it's like they are not; they don't have any technology that the rest of us do not. And moreover. 
you know, they're, they're not spending any more time on it. That's just their, their template that they've agreed on. And is anyone going to sit here and say, like, that's not more enjoyable to read than, you know, your run-in-the-mill thing? So I think it's just a matter of, of saying, <laughs> I care about readers. Uh, I don't think Westlaw and Lexus really care about who's using the service. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a conception that, that the information is, like, the content is what matters and everything else is secondary. But, you know, I think you're, I think we'll throw up into the uh, show notes an example of a Supreme Court, you know, uh, opinion as released by the Supreme Court because it has this classic style to it, doesn't it? I mean, it's go ahead, Joe. And I yeah. think it's in part, uh, as Matthew says, because they, they think of themselves and have for a very long time as a publisher as well as, as writers. And I think it's when you start to think of yourself and realize that you're not just an author, but a publisher that you might begin to think through more of this, you know, how, how am I presenting this? And frankly, it's odd to me that, and my perception is, and maybe I'm incorrect, but my perception is uh, that the, the standard conventional legal research and writing class at American law schools probably spends zero time trying to inculcate good habits and probably accidentally inculcates a bunch of bad habits uh, in text presentation. Uh, and that, frankly, this should be, you know, when you're convincing a lawyer who's five years out or 10 years out, you've reached them eight years too late or 13 years too late. It should have been on the day they got to law school, they started thinking, you know, you're entering a profession where you're not just a writer, you're a publisher. Yeah. All your briefs are essentially going to be produced in-house, largely. Uh, yeah. There was a time when Supreme Court briefs weren't produced that way. You'd go to uh, the the few companies there were in Washington D.C. Um, uh, Epps Printing or one of the other ones, and you and but people don't do that anymore because they don't need to. Well, another way of saying that, and I, maybe I don't know if you agree with this, Matthew, but um, Wilson Epps—that's the name of it—is that uh, ev- you know when you publish a document, you're you're not just pushing content; you're creating a user interface, you're creating a user experience, right? And the nature of reading changes depending on how you present this user interface. And, you know, increasingly people have more, have experience, more people have experience with, um, you know, user, I think they expect more out of user interfaces and, and on both on the web and, uh, and in apps than they used to back when they didn't expect computers to work at all, like in the nineties. Right. Um, no, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I mean this is kind of one of the the core premises I push, which is that you know not only are lawyers publishers, but the you know the available the, the printing technology that is available to lawyers in the form of their you know scanners and color laser printers and and you know desk, desktop word processors is is so amazing compared to you know thirty or, or even twenty years ago. I mean, so the the gap between what a lawyer can do in in their own office versus what the you know the the legal print shop of days ago could do is has shrunk to almost nil so i you know instead of holding ourselves to the standards of the typewriter which were terrible standards because the typewriter was a, a, an effective but but terrible device um you know we should take advantage of of the uh, of what we can do with with the computer which seems obvious and in fact you know at the beginning of the mac era there was a, a famous best selling book called the mac is not a typewriter but that's a lesson people are still learning uh, certainly courts are learning that certainly you know you mentioned law school when i was in law school a first year student 10 years ago now uh we were commanded to put everything in 12 point courier 
I mean, are you kidding me? Like, what is it, 1957 <laughs> here? So it's just, right. so, and that's why I keep saying to lawyers, it's like, you know what? It's time for us to measure our work by the standards of professional typography because we have professional quality tools at our disposal. You know, that was the only reason before to, to let ourselves off the hook. If you've just got a Selectric sitting in the corner, well, there's only so much you can do with it. But, you know, all of those excuses have now been wiped out. And um, so it's like, let's well, move and when you've got the in- When you've got the incentive, uh, especially when you're dealing with a court, when you've got the incentive, which is be more helpful than your, ob- than your adversary, be more helpful to the court than your adversary, uh, it seems like that's all the incentive anyone should need either. Yeah, let, why don't, to make it, Let's get something concrete here uh, um, that for people who, you know, maybe haven't listened to that other show or aren't familiar with Matthew's work. But um, like, so in that earlier show, one of the things that we were talking about is that people should consider not using Word and using text editors and um, and maybe Markdown or some other uh, format to kind of separate the the content and and conceptual side of the document from the presentation of the document. But let's assume people aren't even doing that. Let's assume just people have Microsoft Word open. Um, I think you've got some really quick ways, um, Matthew, in, in your book to for people, just some settings people can change, which will make their document almost inevitably better, right? Uh, do you want to like go over just a couple of examples? Sure. So I mean, people can first just I, do I it say, as they're listening. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I, I am not a, uh, uh, a Microsoft Word shamer or even a WordPerfect shamer. I mean, uh, to me, again, you know, we, we've we've come so far with typesetting, and and if lawyers have Microsoft Word on their desk, they can do so much with that. So, um, you know, all of my advice is is kind of in the realm of of typography. You can use any typesetting tool to to implement it. So, you know, regardless of of, of which word processor, or page layout program, or LaTeX, whatever you're into. Um, but you know, for, for me, I, I really kind of distill it to you know. Well, there's really five things, you know, when I when I talk to lawyers now that I that I say, look, <laughs> we've got 30 minutes together, and even if you blow off the other 28, just listen to the you know, next two minutes because these five points. <laughs> so the first thing is just pointing out that okay, what 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 controls the the how shall we say the typographic quality of your document overall? What creates the most typographic impression? And I say it's the body text, right? The body text is the stuff that's like the main main content of your document. And this seems, why does that matter the most? It matters the most because there's more body text than anything else. That's where a reader's going to be spending most of their time. Duh. I mean, it's obvious, but I also feel like sometimes with, you know, with law, legal documents, especially we can get caught up in the let's like format the caption page extra nice. You know what? The caption page lasts for two seconds and then they're into the rest of the document. So uh, again, the the typographic impression your document makes is is largely a function of how the body text looks. So my advice is always deal with the body text and then think about everything else. Like think about the headers and the footers and the line numbers and the caption page. You know what I mean? All of that can kind of come after because if the body text is wrong, none of that's going to matter. So then looking just at the body text, I, I contend that there's really four uh, decisions that have the, the, the greatest effect on how the body text looks. Uh, and the first one is your choice of font. Your second one is the point size of the font. The third one is the 
line length, that is to say the, the distance from the, the left to the right edge of, of, of the line. And you can kind of see that as another way of talking about margins, right? Because as margins get bigger, line length gets smaller and vice versa. And then the right. fourth part is uh, line spacing, that is the, the vertical distance between lines. So those four decisions are the most consequential in terms of your body text. So just as I'm saying, think about the body text first, then think about those four, uh, four, make those four decisions. And once you do that, I mean, really, you're 70 or 75% of the way home uh, in terms of uh, making a high quality document. So, and, and if you look at the Supreme Court's, you know, the, the uh, opinions from the Supreme Court, they have this characteristic of relatively narrow margins compared to the default in Word. Um, a, I, I think the, the space between lines is, is a little bit larger. It's not just one, and it's certainly not two. <laughs> Which is worse, one or two? <laughs> certainly three is the worst. Uh, um, I, uh, I've had enough yeah. law review notes where st- the law reviews, for some reason, make the students write in triple space. Courier. I mean, it's so painful. Oh, it's. I, I end up just. I, I end up like redoing everything just to get it readable because I can't stand it. But um, uh, so, so if you look at the Supreme Court thing, it, it seems to like all of the excellences of that publication uh, style seem to exhibit exactly what you're talking about. And the font, the font default, if memory serves, at the Supreme Court is Century Schoolbook or something like that. So That's it's, right. Yeah. It's, it's quite readable. Uh, uh, I mean, after all, it was designed, I think, originally for school books. So it's, you know, it's, quite, it's an eminently comfortable read. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I know you've talked to, um, and I'll link up the uh, presentation you did for uh, Typo, the Typo conference, right, Matthew, last year? Um, uh-huh. And it, 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 we won't go into all, not all of that is necessarily relevant to what we're talking about now. But if you think about the way that, um, desi- that the design of the page is evolving on the web, uh, over the past few years, I think the trend is at least as I've seen it, n- not doing this professionally, is strongly toward much larger type, much uh, more space between lines, uh, a lot more white space in general. Um, you know, the, kind of the medium style, but medium was not the pioneer of this. Uh, it, you know, the web is evolving quite fast in terms of its aesthetics, and I don't know if it's oscillating between things and it has yet to settle because it's a new medium, or whereas this, there's something compelling about the Supreme Court's classic style uh, sure well i mean I, I think i think technological limitations you know are often the 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 mother of of bad habits and then the removal of those limitations is the is the mother of, you know doing better i mean so when you think about the web uh you know really a lot of the how shall i say the dominant aesthetic of the web for me is really kind of a function of you know when the web arose in the mid 90s and the kinds of of screens we had then you know we had 14, 15 inch screens, right? They weren't, didn't have a lot of pixels and, you know, type quality wasn't as nice. So there's this idiom emerged of like, let's just make everything really teeny and pack it together because we have to do that. And, you know, that habit had persisted long after it was, it was relevant. You know, it's like now we all have much bigger screens. We have retina displays and so forth. So it's just, I mean, type quality is much better and that's great. But in some ways, we still are, are kind of clinging on to the habits. One that, that uh, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the practical typography site. I, I get complaints about the way I've done hyperlinks, and not from any ordinary readers, but it's always professional designers have to write me an email saying, I'm doing it wrong. And they say, why do you <laughs> not 
underline your links because isn't that's how we do it on the web. And I say, okay, I understand that's how we did it again in 1994 because you know computers were bad, browsers were bad, everything was terrible, and we had to come up with a way of of identifying hyperlinks. And it's like, well, we don't have that many options. How about underlining? Okay, sounds good. Right. Got it. It works. So you know, but now 20 years have passed. You know, we have web fonts, we have this, we have that. So it's just you know, why would we keep using this habit that we only settled on because we didn't have anything better? You know, if we could take a time machine with the current web, nobody back then, no one would would do underlining. So I say to these people, look. You know, now that things are better, we have a choice. We can either keep sort of honoring these these obsolete habits, or we can say, you know, let's do better. Let's make better use of, of the technologies that we have in front of us. It's really an analogous uh, argument to lawyers about let's let's escape the gravitational pull of of typewriter documents. And one thing that's interesting to me because I know that I, I'm like the last, probably the you know the last generation of people who might have learned to type on a typewriter. I had a typewriter when I was 10. And then by the time I was 11, I had my first computer. So I I think that people who were older than me spent more time with typewriters and people who were younger probably spent no time with them. So I wonder if, you know, in the future, this whole like letting go of the typewriter message is, will also become obsolete because, you know, I'll be talking to people who are like typewriter. I don't, I don't care about that. I grew up with a font menu in my hand and I'll say, great, let's just, let's move on then. I want to move to, um, in legal documents, uh, well, to push on this idea about just what design is for a little bit more. Um, there's this, you know, famous quote from Steve Jobs, which may not be original to him, um, and is cliche by now that, um, at least for Apple design is not how it looks, but it's how it works, right? It's how you use it. And it's kind of this functional attitude toward design, but that is not totally divorced from aesthetics, I think. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the legal document that way, I, I think if you, you know, if you ask people, you know, what do you, have you thought about the design of your brief um, or how it's designed? They might think of the, if they're thinking, if, if they're thinking at all, they might think about the kinds of things that you mentioned about the, the body text, right? About the, it's the stuff that you mess with in the font menu in Word, right? But really, it, it, I mean, shouldn't people be thinking about the entire experience of reading the document? And and that is not just in the look of things, although the look of things is important because it's maybe, well, if you think this way, kind of inextricably bound with the with the content. But in terms of how you do headings, how many headings you should have, whether you should do footnotes or, or endnotes or, or hyperlinks in the document. Maybe maybe legal practice will evolve towards hyperlinks instead of footnotes or, or inline footnotes. Or um, should you have, like I said, a lot of headings, a few headings, um, short paragraphs, long paragraphs, uh, one idea per paragraph. Um, or like, in, I don't know if you've read old cases lately, but some of these old cases will go on for three pages without any paragraph breaks. And it's, 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 a, it's absolutely horrible to read. And actually, when I put them such cases in my textbooks for my students, I usually go in and, and just add paragraph breaks, even though they weren't there. And it changes the experience entirely. So I don't know how these things go hand in hand, or if that's the kind of thing, which as you know, I, I know you're, you know, both legally trained as a lawyer, but also a designer, um, how you bring those two things together, whether you think it's, um, there's kind of a design side, which is, you know, now that we have the content, we're going to think about how best to present it, or whether those two things have to be thought of at the same time. 
Um, or if I'm barking up the wrong tree entirely, I don't know. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're on the, the right track. I mean, I think there's, there's two uh, ways we can sort of regard the term design. We can kind of see it in the sense of design, meaning that sort of overt act of styling, as it were. You know, we can say, oh, look at this iPhone. It's well-designed. Um, and it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, a lawyer who w- with claims to have no interest in design uh, in, in their documents still, you know, goes out and upgrades to every new iPhone because why? Because I like the design, right? I mean, people, we, we do like these things. But then there's, I think what you're saying, this this more uh, holistic idea of design, which is really just about like humans making conscious decisions about wanting things a certain way. And so I think it's true. I mean, it's, it's, there's not really, I mean, before we even get to the notion of design in a visual sense, um, everything about, uh, say a lawyer's brief is, is designed. And I, I mean, I don't, it's, uh, like think about the text, right. And we think, well, that's not about design. It's like, yeah, but you know, to your point, if you're, you're considering this whole arc, right, of, of starting the reader, you know, over here at zero, they don't know anything about you or this, this point you're going to make and kind of taking them from start to finish. It's a, it's, you're designing this whole experience for them, both in terms of, again, not just the way things look, but how things unfold, like the, the, the sequence in which you explain things and, you know, how long you go on about them. I think all of it uh, comes together. And, you know, in a way, I think that, you know, for example, you know, uh, one of my great intellectual heroes, Brian Garner, you know, just reading what he has to say, you know, he's always about, like, just make things, you know, simpler, make it to the point, use shorter sentences, use you know, more periods. And I feel like you could you could immediately take that over and see visual analogs of just like making the page simpler and less cluttered, right? It all comes from the same kind of idea of let's not create burden on the reader. <laughs> let's get to the point and and do it, you know, nicely and quickly and get out. Joe, what do you think? You look contemplative. I am. Uh, well, I'm just soaking it in. Um, I, but but I, yeah, I think um, getting people to be m- mindful about the the range of choices. I mean, in, in a way, it's a little daunting, right? There, you can make so many choices. Some of them can be great. Some of them can be not so great. So one way to con- one way to cope with the fact that you have all these choices is to think yourself into believing you don't. Right. And that that in a way makes things safer. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, swallow your fear and, and embrace the choices and do some experimenting, do some looking around, um, and, and find your own, uh, find your own way to make some sensible choices based on what you have available to you. And, uh, and it, it winds up looking terrific. Yeah. The way you say that makes me think that one way of thinking about what design is, at least in legal documents, is it's, it's maintaining and, ha- and it's mindfully maintaining a theory of what's salient, right? Like you're, you're consciously making choices about what you're going to focus on. Because we can't, it, it's just not possible to focus on everything. We can't focus on every atom of our existence daily, right? We constantly have these theories of what's salient. What's that? <laughs> it would be tiring to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Matthew, do you, have other, do you have other thoughts about, um, it, one of the things Joe and I talked about leading up to this was... Uh, um, you know, you obviously have great advice, and we're going to have the links there for for people in terms of just making their their documents more reader friendly. 
you know, like, that's why you, I think you call it practical type typography, both because I think it's people can practically do it. You know, it's, uh, this is not, you don't have to be a genius to use these tools. <laughs> um, but also towards, I think you have like practical ends, right. To make it, um, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show that, uh, you know, t- towards reading, but are there, are there other aspects of, um, I don't know if you want to take it outside of typography yet, Joe, but, uh, are there other aspects of legal practice that we're thinking about, thinking about design could be helpful. We were even talking about like courtrooms and, and oral arguments and, um, uh, and, and the way people file things and, you know, like every aspect of legal practice is, is, uh, is at least has elements of it, which are formalized elements, which are ritualized and, and a lot of them kind of underthought or at least haven't been thought about in a long time. Um, no, I was going to say to some extent, I, I feel like I'm, I'm playing a little trick on readers in that I'm pu- putting this material to them in a way that, that is, you know, they can, they can put it in a little box and say, okay, that, you know, it's not too threatening. I can, I can deal with that. But, you know, Really, I mean, to, to go back to what you're saying, I mean, what are we doing as, as writers, you know, even legal writers, is we're trying to make readers care, uh, care about something that they weren't planning to care about otherwise. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard to do. Um, and everything that we do as, as, as writers, uh, you know, is, is about that. So even, you know, again, as, as legal as lawyers, we think, oh, you know, we're making legal arguments. It's like, but it's more than that. You know, if we're writing for a judge, we're trying to get the judge to care about what happened to our client. And so I almost think that, you know, if you, you don't have to go very far in any design process or writing process to find this kind of, how shall we say, this human component, as it were. Um, you know, the, the writer, the, this gentleman, uh, William Zinser, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his books. He has a famous book called On Writing Well. And one of Zinser's points is that, you know, what makes good writing is is warmth and humanity. And again, I think lawyers sometimes think of themselves as not being in that category uh, because they're not writing poems about sunsets and whatnot. But, you know, we're all dealing with, you know, human, serious human matters, you know, human issues. And that's something that yeah. Brian Garner says you know, lawyers are not only, you know, are, are the most consequential writers in the world, really. More is, is, is you know, writing on their documents than anyone else's. So, um, and, you know, these are, you know, human stories underneath. So uh, I think that, that we should never, I don't know, shortchange that aspect of it. So again, you know, just as Inser says, warmth and humanity is essential to writing. You know, I feel that way about design. In fact, I have this, you know, Sometimes when I go and talk to people, I say, look, you know, we think of people like to say design is about solving problems. But I think that's the lowest form of design, really, uh, because, you know, that might be where that might be where we're going to end up with a solved problem. But what makes for a good design solution isn't just solving a problem, right? There's always there's a hundred boring ways to solve a problem. As we know every day, you know, just going through our world, (laughs) there's, there's plenty of poorly designed crap that we have to deal with. It's just, you know, <laughs> what really stops us in our tracks, though, is when we have an experience with either, you know, an object or a, a book or, or whatever it is, where we really feel like, wow, somebody cared about this. Somebody really thought it. And that's, I feel like that's what we're getting out of it. It's like, one, there's a human somewhere far away who really thought a lot about something and, and, and invested themselves in this little interaction um, you know, I feel that way of all things. It's crazy, but about IRS forms, um, which are to <laughs> me, I mean, people say like legal documents are poorly designed. Look at these forms; they're beautiful, and they're they really incredible. are great. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate how much work it takes 
to make forms like that. I mean, it is very, very difficult. And the fact that they kind of visually describe the workings of the entire tax code, it's amazing. Um, and, uh, so, and, and of course, and of course they encounter people at a very bad moment usually, right? I <laughs> that's mean, true. It, it, this is, it's like the, the reading and, you know, it's an interactive document that, that a lot of people desperately wish they didn't have to interact with. Right. And, and yet they still, you know, they're lambasted because of what they represent, but I think you're exactly right. I think they are. And imagine really how much well worse done. it would be if they hadn't. I, I think a, a word that helps me think about this stuff is empathy. Um, it, imagining what it is like to be the person who has to read this thing or think about this thing or use this thing. And, you know, imagine how much worse they would be if they weren't designed with, approached with that degree of thoughtfulness about what it's like to be a user who doesn't think about the issues all the time, isn't particularly happy to be involved in the situation, but nevertheless knows that it's vital to their, you know, yeah. to, it's a it's a duty you have as a citizen. You have to figure this stuff out. There are important financial consequences. Um, one of the reasons, like when I most want to take the entire patent system and and tie it up in rope with a stone and throw it into the ocean is, and that does happen, um, even though I'm a patent law guy, uh, is when I look at the fact that patent documents from the 1890s don't look any different from patent documents from the 1990s. <laughs> uh, because because absolutely no thought has been given. It's the most anti-empathy-driven institution in in modern American law. Uh, patents are horrifying as documents, yeah, as I, exercises in teaching people about an innovation, telling them on good notice what they need to avoid doing if, unless they get your permission to yeah. do it. I mean, it's just so bad. It's like every design mistake is this made every day in the patent system. This makes me think t uh, two thoughts. One is um, that because uh, I had in mind uh, something which I probably stole from someone else that um, that in, in your writing, like every sentence or at least every paragraph is an argument to read the next paragraph. Right. Instead of like going and like watching TV or something. Right. And uh, but 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 really, there are like two kinds of writing. There's the one kind of writing, which is like that, where the person has a kind of a choice and, and is and is choosing to engage with what you've written. And so your job is to is to nurture that choice. And you have an obligation to make that choice worthwhile. And, and that's it's a very special uh, relationship between writer and author in that situation. But then there are these other documents where it's either the person's job or obligation to read it. And, and those that, that kind of in a way bespeaks the excellence of the IRS documents in a new way, because they, they don't have, people have to use those documents and in a way they don't have to be great um, other than political pressure and, and the like. Um, but in this respect, uh, these kinds of documents are kind of like enterprise software, Right. Where the people like the people, the customers aren't necessarily paying more for good versions of these things. You mean so, the patent documents? Yeah. Uh, patent doc I'm just thinking in general of, of you know, um, documents that people have to read for legal reasons or because it's their job to read them. Yeah. It's it's very much like enterprise software where the users are not the ones are not really the customers. It's the IT department right. or some. And other the creators entity. don't appear to have noticed that they've turned into brutalizing jerks. Yeah. And that, <laughs> so that they can keep punishing people. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. The, the other thought I had, which I wonder if you know, you have any thoughts on Matthew, is that that you know, I think the the idea that um, design is about solving a problem. You know, where, where I've seen that in the design world, you know, kind of as an amateur, is uh, you know Mike Montero's point of view, right? That um, that a designer is not an artist or a word he hates, a creative, but a designer is a is there to solve a business problem for someone who needs 
who wants to buy design. And and I think there's some, some you know, I, not being in the field at all, I don't want to make any judgments, but it certainly kind of rings true in a way. Um, but when we think about solving problems, I'm, I'm led as a legal academic toward thinking about Dworkin, probably because I've just taught Dworkin recently, right? That in terms of law, um, when, when you uh, are trying to make a, a new kind of decision in law, uh, there are lots of like new, there are lots of judgments that might fit the existing landscape. And so one of the things you're trying to do is just to come to a determination that, like I said, that fits. Uh, it has to fit with the earlier cases. But for Dworkin, there's a second important dimension, and that's one of justification. That's that, that the several things may fit, but the right legal answer for Dworkin, I'm not defending the whole theory here, but the right legal answer is the one that makes of the whole resulting body of law the most that it can possibly be. And that seems to speak in a, in an, maybe in, a, in an ana- analogical way uh, to your concern, right? That there may be many designs that solve the problem. There may be many ways of drafting a brief that solve the problem of having content that can persuade a judge. Uh, but there may be one of those choices that makes of that document, that argument, that whatever it is you're designing, like kind of the best that it can be, um, according to whatever the human excellences are that we're applying to that particular field. Um, is, is that what you mean by like that just solving the problem is kind of the basest kind of design that it doesn't recognize that there are still choices to be made and that one of those choices might make more of the thing. Yeah. I mean, well, I almost think that there's no, I mean, I, I uh, Mike Montero, I, I love everything he writes and I, I don't think my view of it is, is incompatible with his, you know, he's telling designers that, you know, when they're facing their customer, you know, you, you need to like focus on the solved problem aspect because that's what people pay money for. And I think that's true. Yet when they go back to their desk and they think about it, you know, to me, that's when I would say, by the way, dude, you know, now that you're secretly here at your desk working on the problem, I want to remind you, it's actually, I mean, again, just what you're saying, like, there's a thousand ways to solve the problem, and you're going to try to choose one. And how are what's going to be your, uh, how do you want to say benchmark guideline for, for picking that that one solution? Well, you know, it's got to come from out of you somewhere. Now, again, maybe when you go back to your client, that's not how you describe it. Maybe you say, oh, I made it red and blue, and it now really pops. But the point is, you know, the Oh, that's the only thing you can do as a designer is apply your own, you know, feelings and experiences to 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 this this uh, problem in front of you. And if that weren't the case, you know, we could just do uh, all these design problems by using, you know, artificial intelligence routines, you know, but that's <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So, um, yeah. yeah, not yet. It's, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's it, I got, uh, I remember speaking, actually, I get this cu- question cu- kind of often where, you know, I speak a little bit about typography and then someone raises their hand and says, well, but which font is the best? And I said, well, there's not really a best font. That's kind of for you to decide. And then they want to say, well, so you're just saying it's all subjective. And it's, <laughs> that's kind of catches me off. I'm like, well, it, I want to say, you know, it is subjective in one way but it's sort of it's subjective in the consequential sense not subjective in the whimsical sense right because we could ask exactly the same question about your writing let's suppose you're a law professor you're writing a law review article that of course it's going to have five parts i mean nope how do you decide like which part is called which you know what you know what i mean it's like everything you do as a writer is subjective right it's on you um so to kind of say and again we can't reduce the act of writing to some sort of empirical excuse me empirical project where it's like what is the one best way to write a topic sentence right we know this doesn't exist so i don't see you know i I mean typography to me is just 
is is part of the same uh, you know issue. It's it's part of the decisions that we make um, in this kind of uh, interface that we're creating between uh, you know the reader and ourselves. And and it's not. Uh... I don't know. You know, the, uh, I, I forget her name. I wish I had it in, um, in front of me, but, um, uh, the woman who, uh, was maybe the leader or among the leaders of, uh, on the team that discovered the Higgs boson. Um, and she, you know, if you, if you tuned in the live stream for the announcement of the discovery of the Higgs boson, you saw a, a PowerPoint presentation that she was giving and the others presented too. And the slides were, I think, you know, if there is such a thing as objectivity and design, they were objectively awful. Uh, every, it, it, comic Sans, uh, typical kind of PowerPoint, even some clip art kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, yeah, we haven't talked about presentations, but, you know, typical kind of bad, and yet it was totally awesome, right? I mean, yeah. uh, part of this, the momentous, momentousness of the occasion, but also, you know, um, uh, you know, people were quipping on Twitter, like if people in the future came back and, um, and looked at this, they would say, Oh, they discovered the Higgs boson in like 1995. Um, <laughs> because it, it looked like such a throwback to the, when people first were kind of using the font menu on their computers. Uh, you know, the, the kind of computers that had the big thick monitor and the two speakers that sat off on either side. Uh, if, uh, if you're using a PC, um, and, and, and people said, well, this is just what she does. She just does this all the time. She always uses comic sans, um, which is anathema among, typographer types and some would say people of good taste but uh but there's something you know there's not a one size fits all and even something which is like almost objectively ugly can occasionally be like really awesome well i think also if 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 you know one of the claims i'm making here is that the sort of you know highest form of design is is the kind where you know a human is really thinking about it and investing themselves in it then really the most the worst kind of design is is the opposite of caring. It's not caring. It's apathy. It's relying on right. the, the defaults. Um, and I think that's why when you see you know somebody taking PowerPoint, taking one of the you know default templates, putting Comic Sans in, it's just they're really they're not even thinking about it. You know, even a little bit. They're like almost trying to care as little as possible. And it just seems like, well, why would you, I don't know, it just, it, it, it creates such a strange message. I guess she's a physicist and she discovered the Higgs boson, so she figures, <laughs> yes. hey, why not? But I don't know, aren't these people, like, they, they took a whole bunch of money and they dug this, like, enormous trench in the ground right. and built this, you know, uh, super collider. It's like, it seems like they could have a few bucks left over to get some help with their PowerPoint. So, uh, I was going to say, it's almost like the rock star who uh, shows up at the fancy restaurant and, like, ripped jeans and stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they can get away with it carefully cultivated you know the other one that that uh, typographers like to joke about is when we see movies that take place in certain time periods and they put type on screen that uh is is anachronistic i'm not even talking about like james cameron using avatar i mean using the papyrus font in avatar i'm talking about like uh what was one i saw recently like um you know the the x-men movie that took place in the 60s you know and they you know show things hanging on the wall that use fonts that were invented five years ago and you know it's just <laughs> funny because it's it's so like 
why do they do that? And then somebody always says, oh, you typographic nitpickers. I'm like, what are you talking about? Have you ever been on a movie set? It's like they've got people for everything. You know, they've got people. Everything, yeah. Everything, especially a superhero movie. They're creating 3D models of uh, the actor's armpits so that the little hairs can look right. It's like, <laughs> yes, of course, you have budget for, for a font. You know, you can get that right. All you have to do is say, I want to get it right. You know, you've got costumes, you've got props. Come on, give me a break. You just... Didn't feel like getting it right. So, um, again, yeah, I, I can appreciate that not every context was it worth somebody's time and money to care. But, you know, when you've got things like, you know, Higgs boson, I don't know, maybe, maybe later on she'll feel like that was a little uh, disrespectful. I mean, all those taxpayer dollars, too, you think they could, you know, put on a better show. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you were imagine if you were called subpoenaed to Congress to to explain to them, you know, the Higgs boson. Like, would you wear a track suit? You know, would you wear a clown wig? No, you'd like put on a suit. You'd look nice. Like, well, you don't have to. It doesn't say in the subpoena that you need to dress nice. It's like, yeah, but you would because you respect the institution and you know it sends a signal right away when you sit down you know, how you feel about what's going on here. And I think that well, I don't, Matthew, you may be talking to the one person in the legal academy who. <laughs> isn't so sure about dress in that way um, yeah he right. probably he probably actually would wear a tracksuit um, i would not wear a tracksuit because i don't own one well okay fair enough uh you do know. you own a clown wig you might i don't own okay. a clown wig. well i'll provide you with one i think you'll wear it um <laughs> can we switch gears to talk about pollen the the web publishing because i'm interested in web publishing and ebooks and and that as another venue to talk about these things and um and matthew you're you're that's your project too, right? Yes, it is. So do, can you tell us a little bit about it and, and why, why you're doing it and um, what other uses people may be making of it? Um, people can encounter something created with it if they, if they go to your Practical Typography book, which is a website. Uh, right. So just uh, you know, for those who uh, are tuning in. Um, so Pollen is, is just the name of some that I gave to uh, a software package that I wrote uh, for doing web publishing. And um, it's, uh, you can put this in the show notes, there's a little web page for it, pollenpub.com. Uh, and I've released the, the, the source code for, I mean, all the code is, is freely downloadable. I don't charge people for it. You can go get it. And, and uh, if you're courageous enough, use it yourself. You know, there's, there's documentation, there's tutorials, there's examples, because I want people to use it. But um, the, the reason I made it, um, actually goes all the way back to my my paperback, the Typography for Lawyers paperback. Um, you know, after about a year, people kept kept saying to me, "Well, when are you going to have a Kindle version?" I said, "Well, I I hate the Kindle uh, on so many levels, but okay, I understand that you all have them already." So I sat there and kind of converted the book into a Kindle version. And to do that, I made some software tools to help me. And I thought, you know, this is okay, but you know, I could do better. Um, so then when I came to doing the, the practical typography book online, which is, again, an adaptation of the material in typography for lawyers, they're both, they're very similar. Um, you know, my goal was to really, you know, I wanted it to be a web-based book. You know, I, I don't, I like the idea of, of electronic book publishing. I mean, I have to like the idea because paper publishing is, is, declining, you know, very quickly. This is what we're going to have. Um, but it kind of bums me out that so far, you know, our idea of an electronic book is, you know, this thing that Amazon has put out in you know, the Kindle or this thing that Apple has put out, the, you know, the, the iBooks. These are not really nice electronic books. And that to me is really sad because, you know, everything else about our today's technology 
uh, is great in terms of typography. So it's kind of this, this disconnect. It's like, why do we have such great uh, typographic technology, but we're being, you know, books are being shoehorned into these sad little formats that make us give up, you know, fonts and formatting <laughs> and pictures. I mean, again, if, if you, if you, anybody is, who's made a Kindle book knows what I'm talking about. It's basically like forcing yourself to make a little website with 1994 technology because they're all little HTML pages. So, um, so with Paul and, and the like, same and the same for EPUB too. The same for yeah, EPUB. exactly. I mean, well, yeah, they're yeah. all variants of, of HTML, just sort of uh, very sad, dumb variants. So you know, I took a look around and I said, well, what's the best I can do for an electronic book? And I said, you know what? I think that at this point, web browsers really do have the best typographic display capacity. And I said, okay, well is there a way I can do a nice book in a web browser? And I thought, hmm. So I started trying to do it by hand and I kind of got stuck over and over because I really wanted to, you know, to go back to your point, you know, one reason people like Markdown is because they can kind of create what you might call the source code, right? Their, their text and, and have as little, little, um, uh, coding of presentation in it as possible. And then later on they can kind of add that. Um, my and I looked into using Markdown for for the practical typography site. The problem is, I just I find Markdown very limiting, um, just as as an author. I mean, I think it's great for things like uh, you know website comments and 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 whatnot. But um, you know, Markdown is really just uh, HTML in a, in a different uh, costume. You know, it's just a simplified version of doing a limited subset of HTML. And to me, I feel like I have a lot of ideas that are not represented in HTML. So I said, you know, I really need a system where I can put the tags on my content that I want and maybe they, you know, and, and I'm going to decide later what they turn into. So that was kind of the genesis of the pollen system where the idea is that I can create these source files for the content of my book. And they really just have the text. You know, if, if I showed it to you, you, you'd think of it as, as it almost looks like a markdown document, just a slightly different um, syntax. And then what this system does is it's, uh, it's actually based on a programming language called Racket. Uh, and you can add any kind of programming features you want. Now, if you don't want to add programming features because you're not into that, that's fine. Um, but if you like to program or know how to do a little programming, you can do, you can add those features. So things like, you know, generating cross references automatically, generating navigation automatically, all that stuff is done automatically. So, uh, long story longer. Um, this was kind of the tool that I needed to make in order to be able to do practical typography. So as, as often happens in a lot of these projects, you know, you feel like you do all of this, what's called yak shaving, right? Kind of around with the tool that you need to do the thing that you really wanted. But it ends up being worthwhile because having made that tool, it certainly made practi the practical typography site itself much easier to, to, to manufacture. So, uh, and then, you know, so I've continued to improve the software. Uh, it's not done yet by a long shot, whatever done means these days, but um, it is the software that I use to, to maintain the site. And, you know, people are starting to discover it and use it and email me and say, hey, I'm making something cool with it. So that's fun that people are starting to, to see uh, what I see in it. Yeah, Joe and I have talked about using it to make a textbook um, for students. And it seems like the kind of thing, too, that if you, if you run a law firm um, and, and you want to put out client materials. I mean, it, it's just a system for producing, you know, beautiful written things, right? Um, that are meant to be consumed in a slightly, you know, maybe at, at a longer read uh, version than a blog post. Is that, does that have it about right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you can use it for a short document. I mean, my, my 
use case was obviously a sort of a book length project um, because I wanted it to have the features to, to support that kind of effort. Because the fact of it is, you know, making a, you know, no writer wants to make a big, you know, website, HTML site. It's, it's incredibly boring. And moreover, as you were saying, a lot of authors now have this issue where they, they want to be able to publish to multiple formats. So, you know, the irony is you have Kindle and the web and EPUB that are all HTML based, right? They're based on web technologies, but they're all a little different in the details. So it's like, you don't want to have to have three different versions that you maintain in parallel. So uh, where I'm trying to get to it is, is really the idea of where an author can have this sort of main set of, again, I call them source files. That's the computery term, right? Of that contain the content of their book and that then they can use these source files to generate whatever it is they want. If it's a website or if it's a, a Kindle book or an EPUB or, or what have you, or a, a PDF eventually. I mean, I think that's something else that I'd like to add is to be able to do really nice, high-quality uh, typesetting for PDF, because once you have PDF, then you can get to, obviously, printing. So, um, and then, you know, why why do we have to, you know, use Microsoft Word for everything? There's no reason. That's, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You gentlemen are going to write a, t- a textbook? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've... I've been making my own textbooks for since I don't know 2009 or something like that because um, I, I wrote um, some code that uh, generates textbooks in HTML, EPUB, and and PDF um, in the same way that you make a playlist in iTunes. You know, you mm-hmm. have content, and so it allows people to share content and reuse other people's content and put it back together however you want. It hasn't really caught on because um, I, you know, my day job keeps me kind of busy, and so I haven't really pushed on it too much uh but but it works for making you know beautiful it uses latex as uh to make the pdf it uses a mark you know markdown to language that it but it has a lot of filters in it you can upload a word document um so that's what i've been using now but um this sounds like a really compelling you know project to use if if we would just want to make our own book and uh in that way well i just i just like the idea of of authors taking this into their own hands because, you know, I you know, like this, this, this debate right now, the authors united, you know, all these hashtag authors who are, are, you know, petitioning Amazon and running these ads. And I find it's like, on the one hand, I'm not going to be on Amazon's side in any dispute. You know, on the other hand, you know, as, as, as a lawyer, I look at these authors united letters and like, these are the worst reason things I've ever seen. I mean, they're just appeals to, you know, emotion and bad habits. And in the end, they're, they're going to fail because, I mean, I don't know if they're going to fail in this dispute, but I think that these authors need to be responsible for themselves. And we've kind of uh, been through in, in recent history, right, the last 50 or 60 years, an unusual time in publishing where, yes, these big publishing companies walked the earth and sometimes paid people big advances. And, ooh, wow, wasn't that great? But it didn't work that way before, and it's not going to work that way later. So we have to sort of say goodbye to it. And uh, and be responsible for our own text. So I mean, I'm you know an author. This was a solution for me. But I I love hearing that you know you, you know you gentlemen are, are making textbooks and thinking how can we uh, control you know the, the the terms on which this is published. That's terrific. And it's important because uh, the the legal casebook publishers uh, you know Aspen uh, West etc. Uh, and, and they're what they do is is reasonable within the framework that they do it. It's not that I don't understand what the business pressures on them are. However, it's just become so misaligned with what it's like to be a law student 
in many ways what it's like to be a law professor and we're the ones who are sort of providing the material that's that's in the book editing the cases creating the interstitial material uh, that's valuable so uh, as you say you when the tools other people are are providing to you don't don't work anymore you need to add to your list of things to do making the tools that you need and that's that's uh, what you do if you're trying to res- approach your craft responsibly. Yeah, but just like uh, just like we have a font menu now instead of uh, Selectrix typewriters, and just like we have publishing platforms rather than just uh, content, you know, banger outers. <laughs> uh, so we, you've got we've got everything that we need, especially within legal academia, absolutely to make all of these things for our students. Right. And there's just no reason, you know, to there's, we certainly don't need a gatekeeper. No, but and now I, all and, of the value added. And I'm not saying it's like yeah. impossible to um, to be to be responsible in this in this way. But uh, you know, when you decide that you need to kind of reclaim the the basic project, you know, you didn't think that was part of your project, but it turns out it is. So okay, it is. So now do a good job with it, or like you were doing a good job with the other thing too. Uh, and, and I think that's, as you say, there, it's, it's easier to do it now than it used to be, uh, which is great. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, again, authors, you know, they used to feel like, oh, I can just, you know, turn in the book and, and the money will come rolling in. And then was the era of, well, you know, now you got to hit the road and promote it. And then the era of, well, you know, you got to do everything yourself and, and front the cost, you know, it's just, so when I hear authors say, well, I don't feel like I should be responsible for the tools, it's like, well, you know, <laughs> you are going to be responsible for the tools. And if you if you know how to be responsible for them, you're going to have a huge advantage over other authors who who are dependent. So um, it's just uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see any any way around it. I'm, I'm always amused because I sometimes get emails um, asking uh, for help from from law reviews, because they say, oh, you know, we're re- redesigning our law review. We publish four times a year. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that they're publishing, you know, printed things four times a year? It's like, there's, it seems like every law school has 10 law reviews. Like, nobody wants these things, right? I mean, are, are libraries subscribing to them? It's like, you know, just put it online, folks. You know, you can, I, I it's funny. It's, if I were dean of the law school, I, I would just cancel them. <laughs> You've got. Uh, I think we have two, three, or maybe even four shows to talk about the problems of law reviews and <laughs> publishing, and and you would be welcome on all four of them. Uh, no, I don't, I don't yeah, want. So, I, I want people, especially to write with that preview. Yeah, I love. I'm not telling. The, I don't want to disband the law reviews. It's just why spend your money and resources on you know creating these little printed things that nobody cares about and most of them go in the trash. I mean, it's like, right. it's just, it's just a waste. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, we can, we can make analogous arguments in in science and technical publishing, you know, kind of crazy things that go on there. But, um, you know, in the end, it's like, there's nothing more powerful than getting, you know, having an audience for, for what you write. I'm sure as law professors, you know, who, who have published things in law reviews, you know, you know how that goes too. So, um, you know, it feels like that ought to be the defining characteristic of law review publishing, which is how do we get people to read this as opposed to of course. how do we create a 300 page bound thing that we put in the mail? Uh, of course. And it's, you know, this is just another example of the fact, you know, w- with computers everywhere and getting smaller, like anything that could be made better with a computer in it is going to be overtaken by something with a computer in it. And similarly, anything that uh, would benefit from freer information exchange or, or or from the 
you know, um, ubiquity of the internet is going to be transformed. And so there's just a whole lot of buggy whips everywhere, you know, waiting yeah. to be discovered. And, and law reviews are one of those, right? And so they've got to think about, I was meeting with some law review students this week, do they, they have to start thinking about like, what is it that we can do with all this person power that right. makes this whole thing better, right? And the one thing that does not make everything better is to take articles, bind them in tree pulp and send them to libraries, right? That doesn't, as you say, doesn't okay, help. So here's anything. my only caveat for that yeah. is that I love the smell of volatile things like gasoline oh, and boy. Sharpies. Yeah. And so that's I, totally obvious. I, I do want to continue to be able to, you know, smell ink. But <laughs> other than that, I'm a totally agree with you. <laughs> I, so you've outed yourself as a hover. Yeah. I, and I, I don't, I don't like to read eBooks not because I have a moral objection to them. It's just, you know, I, I spend all my time kind of working on electronic publishing. It's like, it's not really relaxing for me to like look at another screen, you know? So if I, if I want to read a book, I order it. In fact, a lot of times I like to, you know, I'll, I'll order, you know, historical editions of, not historical, but like things that were printed in the, like, I love getting science books from the sixties just because, you know, people really cared about them, how they were made. And they're just, they're so uh, utterly charming. Whereas if you get a science, you know, book, you know, popular science book. It's like, well, what's going on here? So uh, for me, it just kind of, it, it's not, again, it's not about running away from, from today. It's more about like wanting to remind myself what, you know, people are capable of when they really care. And because otherwise, you know, and I've said this sometimes when I do design lectures, it's like, you know, technology wants to remove these burdens from us and that's great. But when we do that, it can kind of encourage us to be a little bit lazy. And then that's, that's the wrong impetus, right? Really, when technology takes a burden, we should say, great, thank you for taking that burden. And now I've got a little extra time with which I will make something out, you know, some other corner of it better, do something I couldn't do before. Because if all we do is, is just kind of, you know, allow technology to take, take, take our, our role out of it, you know, we're just kind of reducing our role in these, in these items to nothing. And they will become you know, just little artifacts of, of, of algorithms, you know, as many of say, you know, Kindle books are, they're not, there's no human involved with them. It's just a piece of software that converts the book. So um, I like the idea that, you know, again, people will, writers especially will stay invested uh, in, you know, in the presentation of their work just as much as, the, as they used to be, you know, the, the, the change in tools doesn't mean a, a change in the level of engagement. Yeah. You can care differently. It liberates you to care differently. But not rather than to stop caring. Exactly. Uh, yeah, very important. Yeah, it's just like a different tool. So another great reason, because there are probably an infinite number, but another great reason for people to uh, check out practical typography is they'll get exposed to some of the typefaces that you've designed, like equity text and concourse. Um, and I'm a proud uh, owner of both of uh, those and a proud licensee, I guess. Um uh, so you're you're just sort of this renaissance man of typography and design. So you're <laughs> well, cool. You know, type, you're type cool. <laughs> yeah, type design. You know, uh, people should just be aware it was not something that I uh, you know bumbled my way into as a result of doing this book. Type design was actually my very first job uh, right out of college. I I studied uh, you know typography and type design in college. And then, um, you know, was making digital fonts um, when I got out, which was actually a great time to do it because, you know, back then, 20 years ago, 
you know, it was kind of a moment for digital fonts like we're having for, for digital books now, which is sort of this, this kind of explosion of possibilities and people still sort of uh, fumbling around and figuring out what, what was possible. So, um, you know, I, I, I did it for a while and then drifted away from it. And then, you know, since I've been doing these books, kind of gotten back into it and it's, uh, it's fun. So I don't like to be too much of a, of a font pusher, but I mean, I, it's something I, I, have done for a long time. And I, I believe in fonts. I mean, I say to lawyers, look, if your time has any value at all, um, you know, a font, I mean, criticize if you will, make jokes if you must, but uh, a, a nice font will, will make your document look better, faster than pretty much any other thing you can do. <laughs> Just like get out your credit card and go for it. Whether it's my font or someone else's, uh, plenty of beautiful fonts in the world. I even say to lawyers, it's like, look, you can, you can have the fonts of your favorite publications. If you like the New Yorker or, or the economist, you like their font, you can, you can use it in your own documents. Um, you've again, you going back to that first principle, like you've got the same technology as say the New Yorker. Um, you can use their typeface because it's not a special, you know, proprietary thing and you can make your documents look better. Why not? Well, and the other thing that you sell are your books. I mean, the, the books are available online, but speaking of how authors should approach publishing these days, um, uh, I'm going to include links in, in the show notes for, for both books, but also the pages that, um, uh, that, that tell uh, listeners how they can support you and support those books. Thank you. Yes. The, uh, which, yeah, the typography which they should for, do. Yes. Thank you. Well, the typography for lawyers is, is there's a website with excerpts and then there's the, there's the paperback. Uh, and the practical typography site, there is no, I, I get asked a lot, like, where, where can I buy the paperback? There is no paperback. I just want to let listeners know. It's solely a website that operates on a, on a, on a voluntary uh, uh, payment basis. Uh, I, I don't like to call it free because I, I, I want people to think of, you know, again, books are, are valuable. Um, but, um, you know, you should, you should pay uh, in proportion to, to its value to you. So there you have it. Without, without getting too specific, how, how has that worked out? Uh, I don't mind getting specific because I've already told the world uh, about it. I published uh, 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 an article on on the Practical Typography website. It's in the appendix it's called okay. uh, "The Economics of a Web-Based Book Year One." Because you know, I, I do consider this a, a, an experiment, and I wanted to share what I learned. You know, because I think other you know other authors are curious, um, and uh, the results were this. That, uh, you know, certainly I'm glad, well, I'm, I'm totally happy with the experiment and I'm not shutting it down at all. Uh, as you might expect, um, there are many, many more people who visited the site and read parts of the book than the people who contributed. In the end, I think about um, my rough ratio is about one out of 650 readers <laughs> contributed wow. something in terms of either yeah. making a donation or, or buying a font or whatnot. Now, it's okay. I mean, really, it's fine because, you know, as I... I, if you look at the article, I mean, I, I, I say, you know, I don't think we can can say that doing a website like this ought to just be, you know, 10 times better than publishing a, a paperback book, because, again, the economics of the publishing industry are already sort of fractured. So I think that we should look at web-based books as being an op- like, can we at least get to the level of, of doing a paperback? And then we can talk about um, maybe trying to do better. Otherwise, we're just expecting way too much out of the web. Like I put up my web-based book and I made a million dollars. You know, that wasn't going to happen off the web. So it's not going to happen on the web either. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that, I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, have, have kicked in small donations. Um, I think, you know, one of the most surprising things, no, the most surprising thing is that way more people have uh, bought fonts than have, you know, and the fonts are priced, you know, from 
whatever, $60 and up to about 300. Uh, way more people have bought those than have kicked in five or $10 donations. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like to buy tote bags and things, don't they? Yeah. I I think it's, it's not just that, but yeah, yeah. no, but I think there is a sort of, you know, behavioral science aspect to it. I mean, I think about things like, you know, public television or or radio drives, right there. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they can sit there and do the appeal to, to ethics. Like we're the good guys and you listen to our stuff. And it's like, no, you know, people don't care what they care is like, how about this coffee mug? How about this umbrella? <laughs> so, um, so I, what did I, you say they like to what Christian? Well, no, it, it's, it's, um, you like said to buy they tote like bags. To do something. Yeah. Buy tote bags. I mean, people oh, buy like, tote bags. Yeah. I mean, so, but it's a little bit different though, because when you buy one of Matthew's fonts, it's not, um, so when you have the public radio coffee mug or something like that, you, you buy a little bit of warm glow and a little bit of bragging rights, right? A little bit of conspicuous, conspicuous charity what's the right word for it right that you're able to signal that you are part of the tribe and and have donated right um i don't think when you buy one of matthew's fonts you signal like what a nice guy you are for um for supporting matthew i mean you've bought a font which is clearly worth the money right um so it's a little bit different but maybe people see oh well matthew is going to benefit you know he's produces really great resource he's going to benefit if i kick something in why not you know benefit us both by buying something i would like to have anyway and and yeah i boy, feel like i feel supported good. i feel like i support as someone who's done it i mean with respect to these specific yeah you were one, you were you were literally one in 650 joe i was <laughs> one in a million but um, turns out you're one in 650 <laughs> but, but i was and i had this thought this uh, today and i have it every time so you know i today i i put together a little handout for my antitrust students and i was creating the handout uh, and it wasn't complicated, um, but I, I I I picked equity text as the typeface, and I had the thought in my brain, um, you know, Matthew Butterick is cool, practical yeah. typography is cool. I'm so glad I bought this font. I, like I got a little, I got a little <laughs> jolt of of positive like chemicals in my head, right? Because nice. I because I. Yeah, because I did it, and then I got to see it, and it's and it looks great, and so I got another little jolt, and you know I didn't even need to smell you know a sharpie. Funny about, I was I was totally in heaven. You know what's funny about that? I wanted to say this at the beginning is um, when when Matthew, when I was we were talking about like design as as um, uh, you know doing the simple things that you have some of the simple things you have in your top ten things to make your stuff look better, right? And that this is uh, a and I said you know it's a way of one of the things you know it's about making it maybe more beautiful, but also you know you're creating a user experience but and and you kind of objected to the more beautiful part because you think of it i think is very practical and functional um in addition to i assume you you probably also think there's an aesthetic uh, beauty to it but what i had in mind saying that is that you know if you have a simple document that you make the same way you just open up word you've never changed any of the typefaces you hit you know control n or, or command n to open a new document just start typing if you do the things that you say and you're in your top 10 and, and if you go even further and you read more of the book and you just look at that document i think you get that little jolt right it's it whether it's beauty or it's like an appreciation of a functionally better document or something, um, you know, it's the, it's the experience you have of making your document either look more like the Supreme Court's own documents or whatever it is. Uh, there's something that happens when you see a beautifully designed um, piece of text and maybe yeah, it's that jolt I, in the brain. I, yeah. Well, I think we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're human beings. We, we react to beautiful things. It's just, it's how we function. I mean, that's what I always, I kind of find comical. These, these arguments about, well, you know, people only pay attention to the content. They don't pay attention to the typography. There's not, no, that's just not true because there's not some, you know, content isn't this 
thing that you can can separate out. I mean, writing is visual, typography is visual. You know, you you bring them together and they make something visual. Uh, so there's just just no way out of it. And you know, I think we know, you know, again from our experiences out in the world, you know, we, we're not separating out the the content from things. We have you know all these senses and experiences that we bring to bear. You know, when we uh, you know we look at something or you know talk to someone or experience something. So you know, it's it's simply about yes, I don't know. Again, going back to acknowledging the humanity. And if people say, you know, as you know, and I, I, I completely enjoy it when people write to me and say, I know that it's practical and pragmatic and everything, but, you know, I made this beautiful thing or I made, you know, your fonts are beautiful. I'm incredibly flattered. I, I want to put more beauty in the world for sure. I just don't want people to get, I wouldn't want that to be a stumbling block to someone, you know, I kind of always imagine right. this, this straw man, right? Some like grumpy lawyer yeah. in the corner who's like, well, oh, oh, <laughs> all I had when I was in law school was courier and that's all I'm ever going to need. You know, I'm a simple farmer. I just need a hoe. It's like, oh, okay. Right. Man, okay. So, uh, but again, you know, it's, yeah, it's, you, if you give people a little bit of this material, they always end up wanting more. So, you know, it's always been a fun, fun topic. Is that true of antitrust law? I, maybe it is, but. <laughs> well, I think, you know, people who, not only do we have very handsome listeners, Matthew, I think yeah. our listeners are some of the most handsome listeners in, in podcast. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I, I speak from, I speak from experience, but, but hopefully after the show, if they hadn't already heard the Big Red Diesel show and, and been turned on to your work, they will listen now. And now they will have also the most handsome documents in the world. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, handsome people with handsome documents. That's what we, that's what we strive for, right? Be You're better. shaking your head. <laughs> is that it? Are you shaking your head in agreement? No, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Matthew, listen, thank you so much. I don't want to take up more of your time, but um, it's, you know, after you know, reading your stuff on the web for a while. And, and um, it's just been a pleasure to, uh, to get to know you a little bit more. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And, you know, uh, it's uh, like I said, it's uh, always thank you for spreading the word about typography. I, I think, you know, that's been one of the greatest pleasures of this project is that, uh, you know, when I started it, I thought it was just going to be a little website that I put up and was going to be of interest to me and, you know, 15 or 20 other nerdy lawyers in the country. So, you know, the fact that people, I mean, the, the reason it's snowballed is because, you know, people get into it and they, you know, tell their colleagues or their students. And, and so, you know, I, I thank, you know, you two and, and everyone else, you know, who's been so essential to just, uh, you know, getting the word out. I mean, we, we've, we've only reached a small fraction of lawyers, but I'm a patient man. There's plenty of time left. Cool. Well, thank you so much. All right. Hey, thanks, thank you, Matthew. gentlemen. Bye-bye.